Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. The model for a nonprofit is markedly different than the model for a for-profit business, clearly, which is why I'm focused on entrepreneurs who are interested in building businesses. It's what I call a double sustainability. Not only is it about sustainability for the planet, but you also got to think about sustainability of the institution. It's got to be able to live on its own. It's a lot cheaper to learn from other people's mistakes than to learn from your own. Both are important, but the more you learn from other people's mistakes, the faster you get to where you want to go and the more cheaply you get to where you want to go. I'm very pleased today to introduce Paul Matucci. Paul, together with his family, is founder of Feeding 10 Billion, a non-profit resource center for food system entrepreneurs. Its mission is to help food entrepreneurs realize their goal of building sustainable companies that make an impact, create jobs, and generate returns for investors. Paul is also a general partner of US Venture Partners. Thank you, Paul, for, for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs. What I'd like to do is talk to you a little bit about your experience with Feeding 10 Billion and get some insights into the journey you've been on, some of the things you've learned and some of your successes. So can you tell me a little bit about what you do and, and what your inspiration was for so setting my, this up? Yeah, so my inspiration for Feeding 10 Billion uh, really came from uh, reading Michael Pollan's book, uh, Amor's Dilemma, back in 2008. After reading the book, uh, I realized that uh, I had been disconnected to the food system for many, many years. Uh, my family was all in food growing up. My dad was a butcher. My uncle was a baker. My other uncle was an egg candler, if you remember what egg candlers were. That's how they used to grade eggs. But after I went away to college, uh, from then on, I began a career, and I just didn't really think a lot about where my food came from. Upon reading Michael's book, I realized that where it came from and how we got and how we get our food had completely changed in the last thirty years. So I set out to learn a lot more about it. And uh, as a venture capitalist, uh, I looked for entrepreneurs that uh, were trying to change the food system. So in two thousand and nine, I literally Googled entrepreneurs in agriculture, and I found a conference in New York City, and I bought myself a ticket and went out there. And began to make uh, uh, acquaintances with entrepreneurs. You know, I met maybe 15 there, and that through them I met 15 more and 15 more. And pretty soon I met and talked to a lot of food system entrepreneurs. Uh, and the one thing that that struck me was that they didn't have the same sort of built-in infrastructure, networks, geographical uh, density that the entrepreneurs that I was used to investing in as a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley had. Uh, they didn't have uh, services at their disposal that understood the whole startup process. They didn't have lawyers and accountants and uh, consultants and uh, 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 executive search firms that were focused on their industry. Uh, so I thought to myself, well, we can build a lot of that uh, online. And I created Feeding 10 Billion to help entrepreneurs that are trying to change the food system. It's a nonprofit. Um, we don't, we, we've never charged anybody for any, anything and we just love, love to work with good entrepreneurs. Great. It's a great project. Did you come across any other models? Would you describe it as an ecosystem you're trying to, you know, help develop or support? 
Well, we're trying to support ideas. I mean, it, it comes, the model uh, comes from the belief that the way to solve big problems or to attack big opportunities is through uh, a lot of individual bets, uh, many, maybe most of which go awry, but the ones that don't go awry uh, turn into uh, game-changing companies or game-changing uh, institutions. Uh, that's the way Silicon Valley has always worked, and that's the way entrepreneurship has worked most places. Uh, it's very, very difficult to take enormous systems like the healthcare system or the food system or uh, the, the energy infrastructure and try to design them uh, purposefully from the from the top down. It's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there's, there's always this debate about, you know, Silicon Valley. And here near where I live, we've got Silicon Roundabout and there's Silicon Alley. There's so many of them. And these, I guess, is, well, I hate to use this term, path dependencies. Or maybe there isn't. And I suppose it's a debate to be had. And, you know, and you probably have more insight than most on this in terms of what you can actually catalyze. You know, what are the elements you need to put into the, the pot, as it were, for this smooth functioning, well I say smoothly functioning but I guess there's a lot of failure in Silicon Valley and, and that's part of the, the model but an effective ecosystem to support companies. Yeah, I mean I would say it's more than part of the model I mean it's, people ask me all the time what is so special about um, Silicon Valley and you know we have great universities but there's great, there are great universities everywhere we have uh, 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 capital but there's capital lots of places but what makes Silicon Valley unique, and I said, uh, I, I respond that we let things fail, um, and we don't uh, overly punish for failure. People get chances to try again. Um, when you come, it's a cultural thing. When you come from a culture where uh, success is the only thing that defines you, and failure is not tolerated, uh, like I think is, is the case with our political system these days. Um, you don't get experiments, and when you don't get experiments, you don't uh, you don't get uh, innovation. No, it's a very interesting point, and I, I can see you know a lot of virtue in what you're saying. I suppose in terms of social entrepreneurship or you know nonprofits generally, that's a point Professor Ian McMillan makes from Wharton, who I spoke to, that it's a little bit of a different proposition if a nonprofit goes under than maybe a small technology company in the sense that it has people potentially in different ways who need this organization and are left high and dry when it fails. So there's a potentially a higher cost to failure than in a more conventional business environment, possibly. Uh, that's true. I agree with that. But on the other hand, if, if, it, it didn't, if it didn't exist in the first place, they would be in roughly the same position, whatever that institution is. Uh, the model for a nonprofit is markedly different than the model for a for-profit business. Clearly, uh, when, 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 which is why I'm focused on entrepreneurs who are interested in building businesses. Uh, it's what I call a double sustainability. Not only is it about sustainability for the planet, but you also got about think about sustainability of the institution. Um, it's got to be able to, to, to live on its own. Yes. Not rely on handouts for its its continued existence. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that. So, I mean, there are other ways to solve problems. Don't get me wrong. No, and, no. And I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. supportive and willing to 
willing to let others do it. But what I know about is entrepreneurship. So that's what we focus on. It's a good point. There are many different ways and the more the merrier really in terms of because it's an evolving world really different ways of you know, solving social problems. You mentioned there were things missing compared to what you'd experienced uh, in Silicon Valley. What has been your experience in terms of the things that are most valued by food entrepreneurs that maybe you didn't expect at the outset but are the you, most you know, valuable? A lot of it is just it, it, it's basic blocking and tackling. It's that, you know, how do I do a business plan? How do I build, put a deck together to raise money? Who do I go to to raise money? Who's interested in investing? How, who's competing with me around the world? How do I find out about them? Where do I get data on them? Um, so a lot of it is information gathering. Some of it is networking, putting them in touch with people that can help them. Uh, but most of it is information. The kind of Accolades we get is, well, gee, man, I had no idea where to get information on who else was in my space until I saw your site. And I found 14 other companies that are doing something similar to what we're doing. That's really helpful for an entrepreneur to understand who his potential allies, potential competitors are going forward. There was no such clearinghouse. In Silicon Valley, we have things like TechCrunch and a million, you know, the Wall Street Journal and a million magazines covering us day-to-day and TV shows. So people just get that all that information basically by waking up in the morning and, and observing. But in food and agriculture, it was that's not the way it works, at least not yet. There are some good informational sites, uh, but there's not enough of them, and they're not as, as deep as they could be. Oh, that's, that's, that's very interesting. What are a few of the key things that you have learned or, or just general insights about the food industry? What, what are a few things yeah. that you think would have the biggest impact if change okay, took so place? Yeah, those are two different questions. I mean, what I see is an overinvestment in the general idea of how do we get good, good food to rich people in big cities? There's a lot of startups that are, you know, that are looking at solving the last mile logistical problems so they can go to, instead of farm to table, they go to farm to kitchen table. Uh, that's nice. I'm, you know, I'm glad those, those businesses exist, but they really don't solve the, the, uh, the three giant problems that we have, which is how are we going to feed 10 billion people or 9 to 10 billion people by 2050? How are we going to do that without destroying the planet? And how are we going to redress the issues of the modern Western diet uh, on healthcare? Those are the three big problems. So I focus on ideas. Fifty Ten Billion focuses on ideas that somehow contribute uh, to solving those three big problems. There's really four areas that I find to be particularly interesting. One is what I call precision agriculture and uh, food system information technology, which allows uh, growers and, and uh, distributors to uh, more, much more efficiently uh, produce and deliver food. So things like the ability to uh, fertilize uh, or, or, or put down pesticides uh, a lot more judiciously because you know exactly where it's needed and when it's needed, rather than just spreading it on whenever you can, whenever you get the equipment and letting it run off into the, into the waste stream. Um, so that's one area. Precision ag is one area that I think is really interesting. Another interesting area are protein substitutes. So plant-based protein uh, substitutes for meat, because meat uh, uh, is has become an extremely uh, uh, virulent issue with respect to the environment, including global warming, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Uh, and like so, I'm not suggesting that we should all be vegetarians. I mean, my dad was a butcher; he'd roll over in his grave. But you know, <laughs> three meals a week, four, yeah, three meals a week, four meals a week, uh, change would make an enormous difference to how much meat we have to produce. Um, and protein substitutes for animals, where we grow them, particularly fish. I mean, we basically uh, uh, wiped out the top level of the food chain in the ocean. So now we're trying to raise it on farms, and we're feeding it the next level of the food chain from the ocean: anchovies and sardines ground up and the like, and that's not sustainable either. Uh, so ideas that allow fish to easily digest plant protein, that's that's interesting. Uh, so those are two. Third uh, of is waste mitigation in the supply chain. We waste a lot of our calories. So how do we recapture a lot of those? And ultimately, feeding 10 billion people isn't a production problem. It's, it's not a production question. It's a consumption question. And we, we, we solve consumption both by producing more uh, and by using more efficiently what we produce, i.e. throwing less away. And then the fourth area that I think is really interesting is uh, sustainable input, substitute for scarce endangered inputs, mostly substitute for petroleum-based inputs um, that, that leave, uh, leave the ecosystem more quickly um, than some of the things we can put down on plants right now. Right, right. That's quite a powerful set of programs. What about the whole area of genetics, genetic engineering? Yeah, I had a discussion with someone who uh, from a company, a large company that produces uh, GMO products, and uh, his argument to me was people just don't understand, just don't trust the science because GMOs aren't bad. And I said to him, not that they don't trust the science, they don't trust you. The problem is when you have advocates that are making money off of something is that you tend to, I'm a marketing guy so I get it you tend to you tend to uh, exaggerate the benefits and uh, underestimate the cost of what you're doing because that's what you do in marketing um, so I think GMOs are an extremely useful technology and I think that a lot of what can be done with genetically modified organisms um, is not harmful to the public but uh, I basically don't want people uh, uh, doing it, who in the last generation gave me things that they said were safe that weren't safe, if you understand what I mean. Uh, so, yeah. No, I could, for I... example, if I could tell you that, gee, I, there's a guy who's uh, genetically modifying vegetable protein to make it consumable by animals um, so that we don't have to feed them anchovies and sardines and deplete our oceans, that might be worth looking into, right? So I don't I don't look at GMOs or not GMOs as sort of a religious question. I think of it as a scientific question. But we need good science, and we need people that are uh, going to tell us what the risks are as well as what the benefits are. Yeah. Well, my daughter is I debate with all these questions that she's a vegetarian and so forth. And personally, I have more issues around the ownership of the intellectual property, as it were, of owning life and, and as you say, making a profit from it. Not that one has to be a big supporter of state involvement or state investment, but profit-making companies, you know, owning genetic sequences and so forth and being able to manipulate them for profit potentially is certainly worth a discussion. <laughs> yeah, right. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, and basically, evolution is, is is the constant process of genetic modification. Yes, it's just done by nature, yeah, not by people. So, uh, you know, so clearly, the, I mean, it's like anything. You know, any any new technology is the internet good or bad. It, well, it depends what you're doing with it, right? Uh, if, if you're helping people figure out how to feed themselves, it's a good thing. If you're 
using it to commit crimes, it's a bad thing. It's the same with genetic engineering. Uh, same with almost e every technology. Yeah. I guess with the possible exception of uh, nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, do you describe the companies or the, the people that you like to support as social entrepreneurs or is it entrepreneurship more generally yeah, or, or do you, yeah, you have a point of view on it? Yeah. Not exclusively. I mean, um, we work with people that have a strong profit motive and success motive and we work with people that have uh, a strong social motive. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I, it, it, it's, it's fashionable to call them social entrepreneurs, but I look at it as way, people finding ways to experiment in areas that can produce both uh, social and economic benefits simultaneously. I mean, I think, I, I think job creation is a, is a, is a great outcome. <laughs> and we create jobs like crazy here in Silicon Valley. That, that, that's a great social outcome. So I don't, I don't, I don't really separate the two things very much. I, I really think about because uh, of the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm focused on ideas that solve those three big problems. Um, I guess almost all of the entrepreneurs I work with would have to be called social entrepreneurs as well. Uh, and my statement about really not caring about getting good food to rich people in big cities is kind of a, you know, it's kind of a, a sarcastic way of saying, you know. That's not. I don't. I don't. I don't want to spend my time and my efforts working with those companies because those companies they'll be fine without me. But a lot of these other companies that are working on solving these three problems uh, present opportunities for me to add value. Yeah, it's a quite quite a tricky one at the bottom of the pyramid, isn't it? In terms of people who can afford to pay or being able to charge, and you know, there's different ways in which entrepreneurs deal with that or calling them, I mean, social entrepreneurs, but not necessarily profit maximizing. But as you mentioned, this double sustainability that there is this fundamental drive for many social entrepreneurs to become, you know, independent of different financial sources and to be able to pay their own way, and yet that can be very challenging in some environments where literally there is no money. So it's finding a sweet spot, I suppose. Some entrepreneurs will right. offer right. a service and in a more, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, providing food for your know, rich people. So, so I guess some social entrepreneurs will see that as a, a niche in which, you know, they can make a little bit of money that will support a portfolio of activities from one extreme to the other of, you know, more profit making to, you know, less profit, more social, but, you know, the, having some profit in it somewhere. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree. I don't, I don't, I'm not, if people want to start other kinds of businesses. I mean, I'm a Silicon Valley venture capitalist. I, I invest in a lot, a lot of companies that have um, a marginal impact on social benefit, if, if at all. So I'm not against that. It's just not what I do with feeding 10 billion. Yeah. That's not what we're focused on. Somebody yeah. else can do that. And I will, you know, if I, if I get lucky to have a good year and have some money to give to charity, I'm happy to write them a check. Yeah. Uh, but it's not what speedy ten billion does. That's yeah. All. Yeah, clearly you have a lot of experience and insights into the kind of skills that entrepreneurs need to, to build successful businesses in Silicon Valley. How translatable is that, transferable is it to the food, agriculture, or, or ag tech or food companies? Right. Presumably it's not all, but maybe there's some significant parts of it. I mean, what are some of the challenges for food entrepreneurs, well, the ideas they could take on board, you think, that would, would help them? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the things that are transferable are our ideas about uh, how you hire and motivate a team, how you build a structure for evaluation, 
um, how you manage the the, the, tech, the innovation process inside a company, uh, how you you know what, to, what what are the tools for hearing what customers have to say, etc. Uh, so a lot of, a lot is transferable, but there are things that are not very easily transferable. For example, in food, there are unique distribution channels and, u- and unique propensity or lack thereof to adopt new technologies that uh, that you have to deal with. Uh, farmers don't adopt technology the way doctors do or the way lawyers do or the way uh, investment bankers do. They have their own ways, and you have to understand those specifically. So we have to spend a lot of time uh uh, learning the 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 sort of the finer details of how things are done in food and ag. Additionally, big ag companies uh, have not been a source of exit or capital for uh, agricultural startups to the extent that is the case in many other industries, most notably technology, uh, information technology, and healthcare, where uh, mergers and acquisitions is a huge huge part of the of the model. Um, that allows uh, venture investing to work and risk capital to be put to work. The uh, big ag companies, yeah, they buy a company now and then, but you have you have people like Facebook and Twitter buying two or three a month, and that changes you know the economic equation because I know that I'm only going to have you know if I'm lucky one in ten superstars come out of uh, uh, the first ten investments I make, but I got to have something useful to do with every six other companies in order to make the model work. I have to get my money back or maybe make a little bit or whatever yeah. because I'm only going to have one home run. And that's the way the risk, otherwise you can't take as much risk. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's financial, interesting. financial risk. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I just, one other question I wish uh, I'm interested in, we talked about this transferability of learning and so forth. I think it's a very interesting question. And at the heart, I guess, of what you're doing is that idea that, you know, sharing information and that the sum being greater than the parts. And I was wondering for profit-making companies in agriculture, how effective is that, this learning from each other, sharing insights that um, have been hard won (laughs) in this area? Yeah, I think it's tremendously helpful. I mean, if I have, if I see it, I, you know, I, I saw a company uh, a few weeks ago that is developing an information system uh, for uh, people that grow uh, pasture-raised animals as opposed to feedlot animals. And uh, having that, the entrepreneur there, you know, meet with other people that have sold technology to ranchers before is enormously valuable. Um, it's a lot cheaper to, to to learn from other people's mistakes than to learn from your own. Um, both are important, but the more you learn from other people's mistakes, the faster you get to where you want to go and the more cheaply you get to where you want to go. So having people that get it um, is, is absolutely key. Now, it's interesting where your focus, because I've come to see over time that uh, – in it maybe a different way in more traditional business if there's an article by michael dell on direct marketing or direct sales or something like that people in different different sectors will be quite open to reading it i guess and get some insights it seems to be in this area that people tend to think more in terms of their own sector so there's not so much transferability of ideas from people who are working in you know clean water and food and financial exclusion for example you know they've got scarce resources scarce attention scarce time and so they focus on i guess where they've got most to learn i guess by building this concentrated space as you have that's where the dividends are yeah i think that's right 
Thank you, Paul. That, that was very Beautiful. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess one, one final question. What's your final vision, or not final vision, but your vision for the next five years, maybe, of where this goes? Well, for feeding 10 million, uh, my vision is that after, after five years, I can point to uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 companies that have either already or have the potential to change the world in terms of the foods, how we get our food and how we deliver our food. And some of the ideas, I've seen three or 400 ideas, some of them are very, very exciting. It can really make a huge dent in some of our going forward problems. That would allow me to go to my next reward, a happy person in a couple of decades. <laughs> That's a great um, ambition, and I wish you the very best of success with that, Paul. And thank you very much, thank you for, very much. for sharing your experience. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.